I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the Beastie Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Delighted today to be joined by Rob Lackenau, who is the CEO of Banyan Global, an organization that specializes in advising the owners of the world's leading family businesses as they make difficult decisions about strategy and ownership transitions and similar matters. He's co-author of the Harvard Business Review Family Business Handbook, which was published earlier this year. And the subtitle is How to Build and Sustain a Successful and Enduring Enterprise. And that's what we'll be discussing today. So welcome, Rob. Martin, it's great to be on your show. So let's dig into family business. Not everybody's familiar with the differences between a family business and a typical public company. How do you define a family business? Martin, it all comes down to ownership. Who owns the business? A family business is owned by two or more family members, either at the same time or sequentially. It could be the first generation who's planning to make it a family business for the second generation, and they'll own it after the founder does. But it's about ownership first and foremost. I guess that drives everything else because I think that linkage to the changing institution and the very human institution of a family, does that essentially drive the essential differences of a family business? Yes. Uh, In fact, the field of family business advising started by saying, what's different about a family business? And they had the blinding insight that it was the family. (laughs) And they spent a lot of time figuring out what was the relationship of the family to the business. And a lot of the work that was done initially in the field was to work on the unity of the family and the development of the next generation so that the family stays united with the business. If a family becomes divided, it can easily divide the business itself. And so is most of what is different about a family business essentially due to the quirks and dynamics of family relationships? Or are there other essential differences? We would say no, it's not about the quirks and the relationships in the family. It's more about, again, ownership. It's owned by related family people, but more importantly, it's owned by people rather than institutions. It's not like, you know, Contra Fund over at Fidelity owns this company. It's, you know, Martin and Rob and their brothers. They own this family. So they themselves are people and they're thinking about their relationship to the business very individually and their relationship to each other. So, so presuming that means that's not just the usual economic equation, which I'm sure exists, but there's also this personal equation about how do the people feel? How do they relate to each other? What are their aspirations? Is it that additional human dimension, which is the essential difference? It is. It's both how they relate to each other, which I'm sure we'll talk about. It's also how they relate to the business itself. One of the analogies we use is it's the difference between owning your house and staying at a hotel right? The family business owners own a house. And if you own a house, you know your neighbors, you invest in keeping it up, and you personalize it to fit what you want it to be. You might put in a new man cave or something. If you stay at a hotel, you know, you're in and out over a night, and you don't even make the bed usually, at least I don't. And sometimes you leave the room service from last night, still there in the morning as you leave. You don't take care of it. There's a longevity of thinking, long-term thinking that most family businesses that we know make it more like a a home rather than a hotel. So you make a very interesting remark in the book that family businesses encapsulate the best and the worst of capitalism. Could you expand on that for us a little bit? Yeah, it's a funny job to have. Whenever I talk to anybody, almost anybody about, oh, I work with family businesses, they immediately say, oh, yes, my 
fill in the blank. My friend owns, my cousin owns a family business and it was a disaster. They couldn't make any decisions together and they ended up having to sell the thing. Also, if you look at TV shows like Succession on HBO, they show just terrible things going on in family business. And it's true sometimes, usually not, but it can be that family dynamics and other things can destroy not only the business, but the family that owns the company too. The reality we find is quite different. We find most of the family businesses that we work with, too much conflict's not the issue. It's actually they don't have enough conflict to make the right kind of decisions. It's well known that family businesses have employees who stay there longer, who are more invested in the communities and actually more trusted by their customers. So the best is you work with these families who are making tough decisions together in a way that we, our families, never have to. We decide where we go to vacation. We don't have to decide, are we going to close a factory with our brothers and sisters? And they're not only good at making decisions together, they're great at bringing their family values into their business. Fukuyama wrote this book, I think it was a couple of years ago, on the origins of political order, where he paints a picture of things moving from a, a very personal sort of governance, you know, sons and daughters, to more sort of institutionalized governance system. And that, from that perspective, I was wondering, is a family business a sort of a primitive stage of development before companies grow up and become public companies? Or does it have legitimacy and sophistication in its own right, do you think? Martin, to call a family business primitive, I'll have to take exception to that. Some of the facts are 80%, the numbers vary by country and how you define it, but I see numbers from 35 to 85% of businesses in the world are owned by families. And some of the largest businesses in the world are controlled by families. Think Walmart, think Cargill. And clearly the oldest and most uh, longest surviving businesses in the world are family owned. I was on a phone call recently with a Japanese inn that was established in, I think it was the 1300s. So to say it's kind of a passing fad or something that you grow into, be more sophisticated in, I would take exception. I thought you might say that strangely. Well, what are some of the ways then in which family businesses are better than or can be better than public companies? You mentioned one, longevity. Some of the longest lived businesses in the world are family businesses. Are there other dimensions? I think what's so fascinating about family businesses is, well, publicly traded companies, when we worked together at BCG, the goal was given, total shareholder return. It wasn't even really questioned. You know, Milton Friedman told us that was it. And most of our clients, that's what they believed in. What's so interesting about family businesses is I don't think I've worked with one that that's the only goal. Sometimes it's a major goal. They have three that they trade off in incredibly different ways. The three owner goals are, growth and value, say TSR, liquidity, they can decide to keep money in the business or take it out for different reasons. And the most interesting one is control. Do you want to control 100% of the equity? Do you want to share equity? And as soon as you share equity, you share your freedom of making decisions with others. We find that the family businesses that we work with largely keep all of their equity so that they can do things with their business that it's really their lever and a place to stand to change the world. And they use they use their business to try to change the world. So I think there's some good evidence that family businesses tend to take a longer-term view of, of business, and maybe that accounts for their resilience and their longevity. Does that also apply to the social conscience of a business? Do you see family businesses adopting a broader view of the role of business in society than a typical public company? I really do. It's been amazing. We do a lot of owner strategy, and it's always this control issue. What do you want to do with your business? 
And I'm just amazed at what they want to do. Uh, one, we have a group of owners in the States who were Holocaust survivors. And it's deep in their identity to be a Holocaust survivor. One of their big goals is any investment they make around the world has to be in a, there's a freedom index about how free a country is. It has to be in the top half of the freedom index because they want to support countries that supported them when they were in their time of need. It's deep in their identity and they're willing to invest in it. We have others who invest deeply in the environment. We have others that invest deeply in their community. They'll have dividend yields of 0.2% so that they can plow the rest back into their business and into their community. It's just, it's not always, in fact, I would argue often it is not economically rational, economically optimizing. They're playing a different game. And I think that's what's so cool about family businesses is you need to, if you're from the outside, or even if you're working in a family business, you need to know what the owners want, because that will let you know they're setting their own rules, not the rules that you and I learned back in business school. So coming back to your comment about family businesses representing both the best and the worst of capitalism, what separates the the ones that are successful over time from the others? What what do the successful ones get right? Can I ask you what you mean by successful? Well, I guess persistence will be one, longevity. Yeah. And maybe economically, of course, and maybe in this broader social sense too, businesses that are successful according to their own aims. What do they do differently from the ones that run into trouble during these various crises and transitions that family businesses have? One thing they do, Martin, on longevity in particular, which is striking to me, let me use an example to show. We were doing a growth strategy, a business growth strategy for a client down in the southeast of the United States. We're in the middle of it. We're finding all these growth opportunities. The patriarch, about 75-year-old, really successful businessman, called us into his office. He sat us down and he said, boys, remember, here it's survival first, profit second, growth third. And in that order, if we get them in the wrong order, we may not have a business that will survive. So the clarity of survival first is something I'd never really come across with publicly trading companies because, you know, you could be bought at any time or you could try to acquire someone. There's this vision that you want to have the business around for your grandchildren and their grandchildren changes everything about your attitude. Now, what did they do inside there? We, we find that there are three things that they really do well. They make decisions, ownership decisions really well and very explicitly. They have a culture about learning from others, about adapting to the world that's around them, right? They're very good at that. And they're very good at creating the capabilities in their next generation to be either great leaders, managers, or to be great owners. They work on these three things really hard. That sounds like a very biological concept because, of course, evolution doesn't maximize resource extraction from the environment. Implicitly, the paradigm is about surviving and then reproducing. And then only on that basis, uh, other things. That's a very similar approach. I I totally agree. I thought there's a great article in there somewhere. (laughs) They really stress survival. And if you think about Early stage companies, venture funded companies, they stress, can we pop this and sell it to somebody? It's a totally different mindset that they're coming with. And you have to think if you're in market competing against family businesses, which I'm sure most everybody on the podcast is doing, they will have different goals than what you have. They know your goals, which are typically total shareholder return if you're not a family business, 
and they know how to play against your goals by thinking about longevity rather than this year's earnings. So family businesses are personal and, and therefore cultural. And certainly in different parts of the world, family businesses have different levels of prominence. I think Germany and India and Japan are three places, for example, with lots of family businesses. And you've written a sort of a playbook for family business. Is that playbook for Anglo-Saxon family businesses or is, is the intention that it's universal? And how does culture influence the equation? The intention is that it should be across nearly all countries. What we mentioned in the book is that the laws of the country matter greatly to what ownership means. In Brazil, you have to give your ownership of your company both to your spouse and to your children. Unless you sell the whole thing, it's not optional. In the States, it's very optional. There's a lot of trusts that go on. In countries with Sharia law, there's a whole different definition of how ownership can pass. So culture matters. We think that laws matter as much as culture. We also believe deeply that across any culture, there are more commonalities across family businesses than differences. If the easiest way to look into it is founder-led systems have certain characteristics. They're typically hub-and-spoke decision-making. For instance, there's one person in the center. Most every decision that matters will go through that single person. Sibling partnerships have a lot of similarities across the world. If you go to Dubai or you go to Denver, you will find siblings typically have created silos around themselves where they're kind of replicating what the founder did. And they're trying to keep themselves separate enough that their sibling rivalries won't get in the way of being successful. Cousins, they're cousins around the world. And typically the issue with cousins is they become, because there are more of them, two issues happen. One is they become more distant. Some will be in the business and some will be very far from the business. And because cousins often don't grow up together, they won't have the same values from the same growing up experience that the siblings will have. So there's more and different kind of work if it's a cousin consortium than if it's a sibling partnership. That's true around the world. So one of the secrets to getting things right, you suggest, is what you call your four-room model, which is thinking about the frame of the owner, the frame of the family, the frame of the board, and the family of the management. Could you explain to us that idea and how, how that works? Yeah, go back to that founder-led system, right? He's the founder, he's the owner, he's the CEO, he, and he's dad. He wears every hat in the system. In multi-generational family businesses, there's typically not that one person anymore. People have to wear a whole lot of different hats and they have to do different things. Our clients find it super helpful to use a simple analogy from architecture. We say it's Think about you're running four rooms, each of which need different people, different decisions, and different cultures in the different rooms. There's a management room, just like anywhere. We have a CEO. It's hierarchical, thousands of decisions, and it's totally meritocratic. You're there as long as you're useful, and then you're out. On top of that is a boardroom. Very different. Many fewer decisions. They should be overseeing the business. Hire, fire CEO, setting compensation but very few decisions. On top of that, you have an owner room. In an owner room, only owners are allowed in. Sometimes they're advisors too. So you actually have to own some shares. And in there, they're playing with a very different dynamic, which we call vote and voice. Vote means basically, if I can assemble 51% of the shares, I know I can get it this way. Voice means you can do that, but remember, 
I'm your sister and I've got a long memory. And if you do something that's really against my interest, guess what? When my son is the next CEO, there will be some payback. And over to the side of these three rooms, which indeed have a hierarchy with the owners having really most of the final to say when they want it on every decision they want to keep, we have a family room. And the family room is about creating the family unity and developing the next generation, hopefully for some roles in the family business system. You can see how they're very different in their their hierarchy, the culture, the decisions they're making. If you clomb all that together, it's super confusing for family businesses, for employees to know, are you talking to me as a dad, as my boss, as the chairman of the board, as the owner? I need some clarity here. So a lot of our clients will say, I'm going to go in the owner room on this one because we're talking about this in the uh, management room. It really doesn't belong here. And they'll get the right people with the right authority and the right information making the right decisions. So what are some of the ways in which that can all get out of balance? I mean, the obvious one is a succession, but I'm sure there are others. What are the critical junctures for a family business? Martin, you're right. Succession is one of the most difficult. And it's useful to think about succession by room because you'll have a succession of CEO. You'll have succession in the family. Let's just go over there for a second. Because say you have three new spouses coming into the system. There's a succession or people who are having children, a whole new, how do we integrate new people into our family? Ownership succession, that can be, we're going to put our ownership in trusts so they're not taxed until a hundred years from now. So you've created a whole different kind of succession. We tell our clients, you should think individually about the rooms. And what you typically don't want to do is have all going through a succession at the same time. You should go room by room, just like you would your own house. I'm going to fix up the bathroom. I'm going to fix up the kitchen. You want to do a few rather than gut the whole thing because that's too much change. I'll say there's one other thing that's really important, I think, in two of these rooms. There's some families, family owner groups, who can't make great decisions together. Our standard for working in the owner room is not that you have to love your cousin, but you got to make great decisions together. Some family systems have a very painful past. There was either a death or other things which were really bad, and they can't leave the past behind. There's a famous quote from Faulkner, who's an American novelist, the past is not dead, the past is not even in the past. And if you're in an owner room talking about ownership issues and the past always comes up, do you remember the time when dad did this to you and not me? And you can't get beyond it. They're stuck in the past. That's actually the time that they should be thinking about either breaking the business up and selling parts of it to different people or selling the whole thing. Or frankly, getting some family therapy, which is sometimes necessary. There's probably one more aspect that comes to mind in this front, which is meritocracy or competence. I mean, obviously in the ideal situation, the successors of the family, the next generation, are exactly the right people to run the business from a competence point of view, but biology can't guarantee that. So how do family businesses successfully navigate the genetic lottery and and marry competence with family intentions? What they don't do is focus singularly on the role of the CEO. CEOs, there's a market for CEOs. You can outsource CEOs. So don't think that someone in this family needs to be CEO necessarily. There's a whole industry called the headhunting industry. That's what they do is they go out and find CEOs. What you can't outsource is ownership. So really our best families are thinking not about creating that next generation to be a CEO. Sometimes they are, and sometimes there's one or two that, yay, that's great. 
But really what they're trying to do is well populate the family room. <laughs> you want some next gen. And you want them to be unified in some way, especially if they're cousins, you need to bring them together. And you need to train them to be responsible owners. And that being a responsible owner is some of our best clients have stories about how they were introduced to the business. They were taken out in Brazil to the sugarcane fields when they're very young, seven years old, going out with their grandfather, seeing the sugarcane being processed. And he's telling his daughter, this is in your veins. It's something we will always have. Now, that's the kind of mentoring that actually happens in the owner room rather than the go to Harvard Business School stuff that uh, you and I are used to in the, uh, in the management room. So in a sense, we've been talking about the perennial aspects of family business. All of the issues we've been talking about have probably been always true of family business. And I wanted to ask you about some of the new developments in the business environment. So right now, we see the rise of social expectations of businesses. We see the rise of technology and the importance of technological capabilities. We see social polarization. So in that context, are family businesses advantaged or, or, or disadvantaged in coping with these new challenges of business? Let's do the social ones separately from the technological ones. The social ones, I would say, family businesses are greatly advantaged because in their whole history, they've been thinking not about only total shareholder return and liquidity, they're thinking about what they want to do with the control. So when we see what is it, the business councils getting together and saying this is an important thing, our clients, these family business owners, kind of say, well, of course it is. And it has been for generations for us. We are deeply you know, serving our community. It's not new uh, to family businesses. I think it's what they, many, it's why they've owned it in the first place. It's some own it to get rich but many own it because it's a way to influence the world, hopefully in a positive way. Technology is different, of course, and there are many family businesses which are successful in technology and are applying similar rules. Others, the issue is you'll have a founder, a technology founder, and the decision is, we call it 2G or not 2G, which basically means, do you want a second generation, a family business, or do you want to sell it? The big issue within that is typically the founder's identity, whether they want to stay part of their identity as their business or they can separate from it. Oftentimes, we find, maybe especially in the technology field, that it's very difficult for founders to separate their identity from their company and sometimes to the detriment of both themselves and their family and also their company, of course. There's an interesting statistic about one of the best technology entrepreneurs ever, Steve Jobs, right? So he died in 2011. It was a terror. It was very sad. He died too young. And there's no question about that. The question is, should Steve Jobs have stepped away anyways? So when, when Jobs died, Apple was worth market cap about $350 billion, And now it's over $2 trillion. I think it's $2.2 trillion nowadays. So their market cap in the 10 or so years that Jobs has not been in the role of CEO, but it's been Tim Cook, 6.4x over 10 years. Would Jobs been able to pull that off? Nobody knows, but Tim Cook's done a pretty darn good job and not as a founder, but as a kind of a next generation leader. So this is the kind of, are you staying around too long? And it's hard to say because you think you're better than everybody at everything. <laughs> you're a founder, being a founder, I believe that deeply. Then uh, you have to say, when is the right time to let go? And it's usually sooner than you think as a founder. 
Let me dig into that a little more because the Silicon Valley is an extraordinarily important place for the global economy. According to our analysis, technology drives most prospective future growth in business globally, either directly through the technology sector or as a means of transforming other businesses. And if you like, there's a whole cohort of businesses there that have family business type of issues we've talked about. Is there anything special about these family business considerations for technology companies? Or is it essentially the same thing we've been talking about writ large? It's funny, Martin. I grew up at BCG, you know, being a partner in everything, and we had you know industry practice areas, technology. I worked in autos and consumer goods, and there was so much that was different, at least with what we deal with, which is what ownership is and how to do ownership well in a family setting and how family businesses work. It's industry independent, largely. I mean, supermarkets, of course, you got to be more into the community, but any and we see industries from technology you know to supermarkets to autos to name it that can be successful the thing that's really striking however to flip the issue a bit is you'll see and i don't know if i like this trend or not but companies like facebook will take some of the beliefs from family businesses and port them over you you get these Class A share, like Ford Motor Company had as a Class A, Class B share. Class A has more voting rights than Class B. Facebook, the same thing. Zuckerberg, single guy, founder, basically controls all the voting shares at Facebook. Is that good or bad? Will he have the same issues that I think Jobs might have had if he stayed around? The future will tell. There's such big change in that area to have one person with so much control is either a a recipe for great success, as Facebook has already, or an unmitigated disaster, which might be coming if they overplay their head. Well, that's a fascinating dynamic, essentially. I hear you saying that some of the youngest and most powerful businesses in the world have plenty to learn from some of the most longest-lived businesses in, in history. I think they've studied them. I think I know their advisors have. So last question, if I may. Unfortunately, our time's nearly up. You've been doing this for a while now. You've You've got a lot of things figured out and that, that all features in the book. But in any area, there are unconquered new frontiers. What is it that we need to understand better about family businesses? What are the new frontiers in thinking about strategies for family businesses? I think the thing that's really captivating our clients when we're talking about it are owner goals. There's been a lot of work in family businesses around governance because like getting the family right, really important. Someone said to me recently, but governance, it's just about what we're doing and how we do it. We have to get better at why we own our assets together, being really clear on why. And that is what goals are. That's all about the owner goals. And it's so cool is just breaking it open and saying it doesn't have to be, and it isn't about profit. And articulating what it is gives the owners such power. I, I think that's an area that has a 10-year run in it, thinking about owner goals and strategy. And uh, I hope you find some more people to come on your show to talk about it. Well, thank you, Rob. It's been fascinating. I've been talking to Rob Lacanar, co-author of Family Business Handbook, published earlier this year by Harvard Business Review Press. I'm sure it makes very fascinating reading for family business owners and managers, but I, I think actually there are lots of crossover lessons that we've been exploring today from public companies and from family influence as opposed to family-owned businesses that but there are learnings in the reverse direction too. So thanks very much for sharing your views with us, Rob. It was a great pleasure, Martin. Love the depth of your questions. 